I've got quite a stack of books today. I want to show you this new one I just came across. It has come highly recommended. It's called The Son of David, Seeing Jesus in the Historical Books by Nancy Guthrie. Nancy Guthrie is phenomenal. Um, her, her writings are very accessible and theologically rich. It's a BSF style uh, where they go through and tell you specific passages to read and questions about it. So I went through this and uh, found it very encouraging and very enriching, um, both in heart and mind. Uh, is just, um, I don't know, probably 30 or so, 20 or 30 pages on the book of Joshua. And then this will continue to go through the historical books. And I'll keep using this. So uh, if, if you want a companion to what we're doing this uh, in these Sunday evenings, I'd recommend picking up a copy of this and doing it as your devotions or as a part of your devotions. You could probably get it done in one or two days rather than it taking up all seven days in a week. So I highly recommend it. I'll pass this around. Uh, don't uh, look too closely at the answers that I wrote in there. Uh, <laughs> I also brought here a very um, academic, and this is an archaeology book. So this is, a, this is a, by a guy named Pritchard, who's an, an expert in ancient Near Eastern studies. And it has all kinds of ancient um, documents that have been discovered, and they're translated into English, and it'll show you where there are things that are missing, because if the, if the, um, the tablet was, had the one side chipped off, well, that's why all these little bits are missing on this part of the text, because it was gone from the tablet. So it's really kind of cool. You can kind of almost see the, the tablet as you read through these things. And then there are pictures in the back. And you'll see on the handout that there is a picture uh, that I, I got um, after reading this book. And it has to do with the mention of Israel on a specific artifact from Egypt. So we'll, we'll get to that here shortly. But uh, this is just a great resource for uh, ancient Near Eastern studies. It's only useful, well, it's not only useful, but I'm really only focusing on one element of it. I just wanted to introduce you to what resource it was. And then you know the uh, Miles Van Pelt volume that I've been using uh, is kind of the, the anchor for this study. Uh, very, very helpful. Uh, the forward is by Ligon Duncan, the guy I mentioned who's going to be up here in October for our um, 50th celebration anniversary of the PCA. Questions about the books before we jump into Joshua? How about the books, these books specifically? Have you, sure. I guess the question of if you've read uh, Red's book, Joshua? Every Promise of Your Word is what it's called. Yeah. I have not read it. I have it on my shelf. Okay. I have not read it. it. Yeah, so Rhett Dodson, pastor at Grace in Hudson, has written a commentary on it, and it's apparently really good. It's uh, published by Banner of Truth. And you can get it at their bookstore, at their church, where you can, I'm sure you can get it online too, through Banner of Truth. Okay. Okay, Joshua, I always like to start with this question, what do you know? What happens in the book of Joshua that you know about? And don't look at the Sunday school stories on the page here. <laughs> Joshua fit, fit the Battle of Jericho. <laughs> I, I, is it British? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, lots of verses that you write to your son when he's facing battles. Be strong and very courageous. Mm -hmm. Yep, be strong and courageous. My family grew up with 
different versions of the placard of as for me and my house will serve the Lord. Mm -hmm. Just somewhere in the house. Mm -hmm. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I think it's both like a uplifting book of seeing God's promises, like kind of when I like them to uh, like happen with them going in and taking the land, but then by the end of it seems like some of the excitement has died down, not all of it's finished the way that it should have been. Um, so like it starts off like on a high note and then we'll kind of go along with them and it just kind of tapers off a little bit. Um, yeah. You can skip point two on the handout. John just covered it. <laughs> After the allotment of the land, the tone of the book changes from accomplishment and rest to probation and warning. Exactly, yeah, there's a shift in tone. So here's the Sunday school stories that I've got. Rahab and the spies, Jericho. You know, the famous marching around Jericho. Israel crosses the Jordan River. Israel is given the land of Canaan, and the sun stands still during one of the battles. So these are just some that uh, stood out to me as ones that uh, most of us know. This book, in short, is about God's fulfillment of his promise to Abraham that he's going to give his descendants a land. And so it begins in this book. They get the land that was promised to Abraham. God promised Abraham that he would give, in Genesis 12, y'all know where that comes from, Genesis 12, 15, 17, 22. We've been over this. God promised he would give a land, and we see its fulfillment in this book of Joshua. Uh, look in your Bibles at Deuteronomy 34.4. You'll remember there's a close connection between the, the closing chapters of Deuteronomy with the historical books, to the point that some scholars have suggested maybe it's all written by the same person. I don't think that's uh, necessary nor even helpful. I think it's more helpful to think of how foundational Deuteronomy was to the, the historical period. But Deuteronomy 34.4 says, And the Lord said to him, This is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. This was rooted, the action of Israel coming into the promised land is rooted in that promise to Abraham that the land would be theirs. It belonged to Abraham's descendants. Land is going to keep coming back as an important part of the book of Joshua. Um, Guthrie, in, in her book, says this, point three under introduction. Joshua helps us understand how our greater Joshua, Jesus, leads us to take possession of all we stand to inherit in the heavenly kingdom of God, the new heaven and the new earth. So it's, it's going to have rich um, cosmic implications what's going on in this book plays out in all of history and foreshadows what christ brings to his people who are in him any questions about just kind of the overarching theme there okay let's do some quick background stuff authorship is anonymous perhaps one of those who entered the land with joshua but it, it's very likely one who lived even later uh, chapter 5 joshua chapter 5 verse 6 talks about 
I don't want to misquote it, so I'll just I'll just read it. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished, but they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give to us a land flowing with milk and honey. See the, the relationship there is he's talking about uh, the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give to us. So he seems to be a little bit removed uh, from the action. Um, yeah, and but it also it doesn't rule out the fact that he could have been one of those who came in with Joshua. Uh, there are some in, there are some indications of of later authorship. I'm, I'm sorry, that last one implies that he was with Joshua. These other ones imply that he might have been later. Specifically, the phrase "until this day" comes up regularly in the book, and so the author is saying, you know, this was the this monument was set up and it stands to this day, or this happened and you can see it, that it still stands to this day. So um, even if it were a generation or two later, um, that sort of phrase would make sense. There's strong evidence of the preservation of sources from the time of the event. So um, specifically Sidon. So, so I guess the point is, even if it was written later, it was almost certainly written by sources that were current to the events because they call the big city in Phoenicia Sidon, whereas not long after, the big city in Phoenicia was actually Tyre. And so uh, at that time, though, Sidon was the big city. So the fact that it's referred to as Sidon is evidence that this, this is old and, and reliable uh, information about the, what was going on in those days. Uh, and then there's a reference to the Jebusite city. Uh, and these, this was, those are those who occupied uh, Mount Zion in uh, this, what became the city of David in Jerusalem, um, or the David's palace area in, in Jerusalem. Uh, so that calling it the Jebusite city as it still stands before it's destroyed, that also dates it to pretty old sources. And the historical context of what's going on in Joshua, the, um, the fighting, uh, the, the types of warfare, those types of things are all supported by other sources. I'm only going to tell you um, about one uh, that mentions Israel in particular is being in the land. Uh, and it comes from an Egyptian source called the Victory Hymn of Merneptah. Uh, and they describe Israel as being conquered. This is, uh, you see the, the picture there in the top in the middle of the handout. This is the inscription that was uh, deciphered. And it actually mentions the name of Israel. I believe it's the only um, mention of the nation of Israel outside of the Bible. Um, but it is reliable. It is, this is an old document from 12, uh, I think it was written in 1230-ish. Um, but it, it describes events from 1208. Um, no, it's, it's, it's written, that's backward because we're talking BC here. Um, but yes, it, it was written around, uh, 1208 describing events of 1208. It says Israel is laid waste. His seed is not. That's a typical way that, um, victors would describe their victories. They would say, we went into the land and we wiped everybody out and nobody survived. And so this, it would make sense that they would write in this style describing Israel, even though we know, of course, that's inaccurate. Uh, the existence of Israel in the land is very accurate uh, in their presence at that time. Israel was also listed at that point, and this document in particular is listed very differently than the other um, locations that were conquered. Israel was not listed as a location. It was listed as a people group. 
And so that shows us this was, Israel may not at this point have already had the land. Maybe they were coming into the land. Maybe they weren't yet established. Maybe they hadn't yet divided the land. But it shows that this is pretty consistent with how uh, history reveals things were happening in the land in those times. Uh, and that Israel truly, um, not just by scriptural evidence, which is enough for us, but also by extra biblical evidence uh, was there in the land at this time. Thoughts, questions about that? We don't know. There's so many different theories as to how many it was. Theories from uh, tens of thousands to millions. It's it's hard to know. Sorry. <laughs> the structure of this book, uh, if you want to, I think if you if you keep think about it as the land. In the relationship to the land, I think that's the most helpful thematic outline for the book. Chapters 1 through 5 talk about preparing to enter the land, and the word cross, talking about crossing the Jordan, comes up six times in these five chapters. So that word kind of defines the first six chap- first five chapters. And then they enter into Canaan, into the land, and here they take. And so the word take is only used three times, but variations of the word are used throughout in chapters 6 through 12 as they come into Canaan and take the land. And then they allocate Canaan. They chop it up and give it to the tribes in chapters 13 through 21. And this is the word divide, which comes up 16 times in those chapters. And then there's the word serve in chapters 22 through 24, which comes up 15 times in those three chapters alone, even though it had not been used once prior to this in the entire book. So it really is um, quite uh, divided up like this. And that's where they're keeping, um, how, how do they keep Canaan? It's by keeping the covenant. It's by obeying, trust and obey. It's that, um, it's that thing. So um, when, when uh, the songs like they did tonight work so well with the text, um, that's credit to the musicians. I, they just say, hey, what are we studying? I say, it's Joshua. And they, they pick the songs that fit so well with the themes of the book. So thank you all. Um, if you want to take a narrative approach to the book of Joshua, you can say in chapter 1, Joshua succeeds Moses. Chapters 2 through 4, Israel crosses the Jordan. Chapter 5, there's covenant renewal. Chapter 6 through 12, the conquest of the land. 13 through 22, the land is settled. And then the last two chapters, there's covenant renewal and Joshua's death, which helps you kind of get an idea of what types of events are happening throughout. That's just kind of the overview. Questions about the, the overview? I'm finding that a lot of the meat in these books comes when we get to the message and theology and then the uh, looking forward to the New Testament. So we've kind of fast forwarded through the first little bit and I'm ready to to dive in if y'all are. Okay. So here's the message and theology. Now, a caveat on this one. The message and the theology are really difficult to uh, separate from approaching the New Testament. So a lot of this message and theology is approaching the New Testament and then under the approaching the New Testament... um, section on the back. I only have uh, specifically Christ in in the book of Joshua examples. But as we look at the message in theology, just know a lot of this is looking forward to the New Testament um, implicitly and explicitly. So first of all, there's awaiting Yahweh's salvation. uh, Joshua, the name means Yahweh saves. It's the same name as Jesus. So it was pointed out by, by Guthrie. She said, if, as Jesus was reading this book, he was reading it as the book of Jesus. So you can kind of think, think of the applications that that might have for, 
for Jesus himself as he's reading this. Of, of course, they're not fabricated. Like these are designed and planned from before time. But um, that kind of gives you the weightiness of how important this book is going to be for, uh, for, for the church uh, and for all who are in Jesus. Uh, there's the judgment of sin is a huge theme. And this, um, this was eye-opening for me when I realized this. Uh, read this. Uh, you can see this quote here from uh, the Van Pelt volume, uh, actually written by, this chapter is actually written by uh, Timmer, Daniel Timmer. It says, The elaboration of the land promise in Genesis 15 includes an important detail of, as to the timing and manner of Yahweh's gift of the land. It says, The sin of the Amorites will at a certain point be complete. And then Abram's descendants will possess the land. I had not noticed that before. Uh, in the promise to Abraham, I think it's worth flipping over there in your Bibles to Genesis 15. Genesis 15. I'm going to read verses 13 and 14, and might as well read 15 so that we can get to 16. Genesis 15, starting verse 13. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. That, of course, is talking about Egypt. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. It can't be now, at the giving of the promise, because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Once the Amorites' iniquity is complete, then the judgment on their sin makes it appropriate for the land to be purified and given to God, to his people. Questions on that? Let me, let me just recap it really fast, like Cliff Notes version. Israel's taking of the land was a part of God's judgment of sin in conquering the evil of the land because their sin, the sin of the Amorites at this point was complete. And, and, it, and it, God doesn't just come in and uh, out of nowhere just decide to kill people. He does this as judgment against wickedness. Yes, Stephen. Um, I've heard that Israel's conquest fits the archetype of the flood um, from Genesis. And the, that the, the flood is an archetype that's repeated several places, including here. I think our Bible project also pointed out that like Sodom and Gomorrah uh, fits that flood archetype as well. Yeah. And the archetype is destruction for sin right. and, and purification. Yeah. And in this case, Israel is more of an instrument of God's uh, judgment and like yeah. almost in a way like their receivership of the land is sort of secondary. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's I a... Mean, aside from the fact that it's Right, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. No, I, and I think they, they... We find out actually in the end, those two have to go hand in hand. Destruction, harem, devoting things to dis destruction goes hand in hand with the inheritance. And that's how it's going to go on that last day when Christ returns too. There's going to be utter destruction, but not for those who are in Christ. That's when the inheritance then becomes that of all of Christ's people. So, um, yeah, it's absolutely an archetype and it, uh, 
the flood is a part of that. Sodom and Gomorrah is a part of that. I think um, this absolutely would be in line with that. And we still, I mean, and, and we see it enacted in Christ on the cross, destroying his enemy in his resurrection, destroying death. And we will see it in its fullness when Christ returns. And, and that's how God does it. He, he, he doesn't do anything halfway. He completes the task. And that is to um, obliterate our enemy, to obliterate his enemy um, for his glory. So the theology of the land, let's talk about that top of the third column. The land is given by God. It's important to note that it's not taken by Israel. And it's also important to note that it is incomplete conquest in this phase. You may uh, be able to look back to last week's handout if you still have one. Uh, at the maps, you'll notice with um, the kings of Saul, the kingdoms of Saul and David and Solomon, the land grew and grew and grew. But even that is never quite the fullest fulfillment of this land promise. There's, there's more yet to come in this promise of the land. This period of Israel's history foreshadows the conquest of sin and death, which leads to our entrance into the promised land at the end of time. This has been accomplished by Christ. The land which is promised to us is the new heavens and the new earth, and the rest that is promised is the eternal Sabbath. Canaan is not, was not and is not the ultimate rest. Hebrews 4 verses 8 and 9 speak specifically of uh, the book of Joshua and what Joshua did for Israel. It says, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Farms in Canaan are not the ultimate promise that God has made. He has much greater promises in mind for his people. And I want to Read a couple points here. The Bible talks about this in, uh, in a few different ways. Because you, you remember the Israel, uh, not the Israelites, the disciples in particular were expecting Jesus to be a physical, like have a physical king, kingdom that would take the land of Israel back. They expected this to be fulfilled in a literal physical uh, sense as the ultimate fulfillment of these promises to Abraham. Uh, remember on the road to Emmaus, even after Jesus had died and risen, they were still confused. Luke twenty four twenty one says, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Those who were on the road to Emmaus, they were saying, we had hoped Jesus was going to be the one who's going to redeem Israel, but I guess that didn't happen. They missed it because they weren't looking for the right kind of redemption. They were looking for the wrong kind of salvation. And uh, Jesus then talks with them, and he, he, um, he doesn't actually address their question directly. He doesn't say, no, you're wrong. But instead, what he does is he goes back and reinterprets all the scriptures that talk about him. All these promises. Uh, it says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus is saying, I am the fulfillment of all these promises. I am, and you missed it because you were looking for the wrong kind. And then even right before Jesus was about to ascend, in Acts 1.6, it says, They asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? <laughs> oh, ye of little faith. Um, but I know I would be just as guilty of that. 
I'm not blaming them as if they're worse than I am, but we can see it more fully because we have the full revelation here of God. Um, and in Jesus' response, he's seeking not, um, not just to correct the disciples' idea about the timing of the restoration, but to come... Um, of the restoration to come, but more significantly, he was trying to help them understand what would be restored. He wanted them to adjust and enlarge the idea of the kingdom that they had inherited from their Jewish upbringing into a much bigger and broader understanding of the kingdom of God. And here's his answer. He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria until the end of the earth. The land is not limited to Canaan. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the end of the earth. The whole earth is a part of this inheritance promise to those who have faith as Abraham did. So instead of instructing his followers on how the, um, they should take back the, the government from Rome, that's not what Jesus instructed them to do. He commanded them, go and make disciples of all nations. Go and make disciples of all nations, Matthew 28 uh, the yeah, I'll, I'll stop right there. Reading from um, Guthrie here on that paragraph, at least. Uh, and and she points out it's really important. The land promise to Israel has not been revoked or replaced. It has been transformed and expanded. Because every person in whom Christ dwells by His Spirit is now holy land. So so God's conquest of the, of the whole earth is not it's not just the the promised land and it's not just that they want to get by promised land I mean Canaan and it's not just that they want to God wants to get Canaan back it's that he wants to get all of his people throughout the entire world. And we can get into how Abraham Abraham understood it in Hebrews 11 as as more than just a specific land how he understood it as um a city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God that's what Abraham looked forward to. Uh, so there's just a glimpse into, I think, how when we read Joshua and we see how God is giving the land and Israel is coming and taking what God is giving them, um, this is looking forward to the fact that all of us in Christ have the inheritance of the entire world coming. Thoughts on this? Questions? Comments? Rebukes? Mm -hmm. Even, uh, I guess, like a further uh, point in saying that, like, the land given is not complete, they didn't, like, it's also an incomplete they didn't finish it. Mm -hmm. uh, I, mean, I mean, I know I made that point earlier, but even, even more so on that, it's, they, didn't, they didn't finish what they were being set out to do. That's absolutely right. Let me see if I can find all the examples of that. And even before they went over, they were going to leave it incomplete because two of the tribes stayed behind. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Then, yeah. So even, even from the very, very start, it wasn't uh, going to be mm -hmm. completed. Yeah, uh, those of you who have your Bibles, um, got a few verses to look up here. Joshua 13, 13. You got it? And then we'll do 1563. Oh, poor Elliot. Poor Jeanette. 
1563, anybody want it? Thank you, Amy. Um, 1610. Thank you. 17, 12, and 13. Thank you. All right, let's do uh, 13, 13. Can you read that one? Yet the people of Israel did not drive out the Geshurites or the Machites, but Gesher and Makath dwell in the midst of Israel to this day. Great. They didn't drive them out. They're still there in the midst of Israel. 1563. Same problem. 1610. However, they did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. So the Canaanites have lived in the midst of Ephraim to this day, but have been made to do forced labor. 17, 12, and 13. Yet the people of Manasseh could not take possession of those cities, but the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. Now when the people of Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor but did not utterly drive them out. You get the point? They didn't do what they were supposed to do. This was supposed to be a purification of the land. Why is that so important? start assimilating these other worldly gods into your worship of God, you, you know who wins that one. Isn't it kind of like how Solomon just ended up just kind of... Yep, Solomon. Great example of maybe even some of these specific examples we read led to that. Yeah. Deuteronomy 20. This is right. Um, this is as... These are, these are commands on entering taking the land, how to do it. Deuteronomy 20, verses 16 through 18 say, But in the cities of these people that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction, the Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded. Why? Verse 18, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods. And so you sin against the Lord your God. One perspective was, if we had a cult today that was sacrificing kids, there would be an outcry. These nations were doing that. And there was nobody bringing in justice except God. God is the one coming in and bringing punishment for these crooked, awful practices and not just those specific ones, but the entire heart of turning against God. And so as God was coming in, he was purifying this land for his people and giving it to them as a sign of his promise that he's going to give them an inheritance, but they didn't do it. Not fully. Which, go ahead, sorry. I think we look at those 
when you think about abortion and the, the efforts to make it seem palatable, it, it's, it's funny how as a culture we can take something that we would think in a different time frame would be awful and make it not only acceptable but something we're fighting for mm-hmm. a lot, right? Mm-hmm. Isn't there something parallel to mm-hmm. that? Absolutely. Because they were doing things that we think are ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. Burning kids on it. Yeah. So we shouldn't be the least bit surprised if God brings judgment against these kinds of things. Because he will ultimately. And how he decides to dole out that sort of justice before the end is not ours to decide. Vengeance is his. He will repay. Thanks for mentioning that. The whole fact that they failed to actually do this well. Okay. Um, The covenant is an important theme that goes throughout. The Abrahamic covenant is the foundation, as as we've already looked at. It's this promise to Abraham that this is going to be your land that I give to your your descendants. And uh, also, there's immediately, in the same breath and multiple occasions, the, the demand that Israel... In the words of the song, trust and obey, according to the Mosaic Covenant, in order to keep the land. So yes, this is God's promise and God's covenant to Abraham, and it's also his covenant through Moses for, for Israel. They continue to, um, to follow the Lord. They continue to worship him as he has uh, designed. They continue to um, keep the land pure uh, in order to uh, keep it. And you see a lot of that in chapters 23 and 24, right at the end there's a lot of that renewal goes on. There's so many things I, I, I want to get into specifically with the text of Joshua because I started as I started reading it, um, I found it just really, really encouraging. Um, let me see where I should focus in right here. Okay, go to Joshua 5. Up until this point, uh, Joshua takes over. He assumes command. There's Rahab who hides the spies. And then Israel crosses the Jordan. And then they set up memorial stones. And then before they begin taking the land, Joshua 5... The na- this new generation is, is circumcised. <laughs> this new nation, this new generation is circumcised. Um, they had not taken yet upon themselves the sign of the covenant of Abraham while they were in the wilderness. Yes. Is there... Mm. 
necessarily that's how it's made to seem. Right. I'm sure there are lots of Jews and Jesus' time that were placated as a goal. I don't know about that connection. It it may be valid and and I guess the point is these are signs and seals, these are not salvation themselves themselves. And that's important to remember. And it reminds us of God's patience. But also the, the point of these signs is to set apart God's people with, with the this, this sign and the seal that you are God's. Uh, you, you belong to God, not God's plural. You are God's possessive. Um, and what they're doing by the whole nation being circumcised. Notice when they, when they cross the Jordan, it's a lot like crossing the Red Sea. God's presence goes before him. The waters is stopped. They pass on dry ground. They're entering into the land. This is, in a sense, another one of those... I've gotten to where I don't really like the term recreation. Um, but it's, it's another one of those covenant renewal moments where God is reminding, you, reminding them, hey, I am your God and you are my people. And so there's a bit of a renewal on their part uh, as God is reminding them of his promise to them. And so the fact that they are circumcised, they are saying, we are first and foremost, as we're about to begin this, we belong to God. This is our identity. We are set apart from the nations. Um, and they, they take upon themselves the sign of God's covenant. Yeah, no, I think that's, that would be very consistent with what we know about that generation, especially from the book of Numbers. After they were circumcised, reminding themselves of the covenant God had made, they then celebrate Passover, which reminds them what? <laughs> that God is the one who provides the safety from destruction. This the sacrifice of a lamb that, that saved them in Egypt and brought them out of Egypt. And then... Right at the end of chapter 5, the commander of the Lord's army shows up. All right, the Lord's army is coming in. The Lord's army throughout the Old Testament is a, is a sign of judgment and of lots of damage for the sake of purifying and punishment for sin. And so here in the commander of the Lord's army, it says, When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No. (laughs) No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. He is on the side of God, and he goes before Israel to kill not just the nations in there, but to kill wickedness in Israel as well, because not soon thereafter, chapter 7, Achan himself from the nation of Israel is killed for his wickedness. 
And so the, the sins of the um, Amorites is complete. The Lord has sent the commander of his army to go before Israel and to do the fighting. Because you see time and time again throughout the book of Joshua, Israel's not fighting. God does the fighting. God is the one who's going in and, and, to, and giving the land to Israel. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Of course, how, what, what is that reminiscent of? The burning bush, Jacob wrestling with, with God. You know, these, these instances where he, Joshua realizes, I have seen God and he is going before us. And immediately what happens Jericho falls, not by Israel's hand, but by the hand of the Lord. Uh, so this is a really important chapter for how Israel sets itself up under the covenant of God, taking on the sign of the covenant, celebrating Passover as God being the one who redeems from death, the commander of the Lord showing up and leading Israel into the charge. God is at work. God is saving Israel and giving them land. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's one of the, the one of the big arguments um, is that it's it is a pre- specifically a pre-incarnate Christ, a Christophany, um, and he didn't reject the worship, whoever he was, whether it was just God showing Himself in some way, or whether it really was pre-incarnate Christ. Either way, deserving of worship, the place where He stands is holy. Uh, so that's a that's that's pretty. Go ahead. This Spider-Man meme, but it's Jesus and Jesus, Joshua, Jesus. <laughs> that's funny um, but here if you read the book of Joshua with, with um, Joshua as that forerunner to, to Christ who shows us in so many ways uh, first of all how not to do it but second of all how Christ will do it correctly it's a really really rich story if you want to read about the ethical questions over whether like why um, why this is not just a heartless genocide why this is not wicked um, there's a whole list there in the bottom right of that on the third column there it goes on to the back. And um, I have another whole list of about 15 different ways that Christ is, is uh, seen in the book of Joshua, again, from this, this Guthrie resource that are not even listed there among those seven. So if you'd like to see those, um, you can see this. Come see me afterward. We're going to need to wrap up here. Um, but I do recommend, uh, if you're interested in trekking through the historical books, um, with some really rich theology. Come take a look at this, take a picture of it, grab a copy, because we'll be using it in the, in the coming weeks as well. Yes? Something that I always thought was confusing, and I don't know if this is in the book of Joshua, but I know it's one of the Canaanites in the Promised Land. They're essentially not leaving. But they know that Israel's army is essentially taking everything out and that the Lord's with them, and they acknowledge that, yet they don't flee from their land. It's just like, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Because they hear of all the things that Yahweh is doing. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's David's army. Mm-hmm. I don't remember what specifically it is. Yeah, no, that's exactly, uh, Rahab is the one who recites this. And she says, I see who your God is and what he's done and how he dried up the Red yeah. Sea before you and he helped you take over Sihon and Og and uh, all these others. Um, and, and she puts her faith in, in that God. Everybody else hears these rumors, and they melt into fear. She melts into faith. Um, they don't actually submit to God. It, it, and that shows you the foolishness of the heart that is set against God. 
And there are other places in Joshua that talks about how the people of the land hardened, their, their hearts were hardened against God even through the conquest. And they continue, they maintain their stubbornness. But don't we? Even when we're disciplined, even when, we're, when God's working on us, we continue to just hunker down, double down on our own bad choices. Like, it's just crazy how God uses these stories in the Old Testament to show us both how we're still much like his non-chosen people and much like the chosen people. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, it is humbling. It's humbling.